From now through the end of the year, I'm making a concerted effort to share a lot more interviews with owner-operators. Chef Michael Reed is just that. He's an owner-operator based out of Southern California. It's a great interview coming up. And in fact, this is the first of many, many great interviews that we're going to hear over the next several uh, months. I appreciate your patience. Uh, I hope you got a lot out of the 10-episode arc we just finished talking all about consumer trends. Uh, in a strange way, it really leads right into the conversation uh, that I'm thrilled to be able to share with with you on today's episode of Restaurant Strategy. There's an old saying goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for anyone who's looking. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly podcast dedicated entirely to the hospitality industry. Each week I leverage my 20 plus years in the industry to help you build a more profitable and a more sustainable business. I also work directly with operators all over the world through my group coaching programs to address and overcome the specific challenges we face in our industry. Curious to learn more? Set up a free 45-minute strategy session at restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. That call is with me. I can show you how simple it can be to run a profitable restaurant. Again, restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. As always, you'll find that link in the show notes. Thousands of restaurants across the country use KickFin to send instant cashless tip payouts directly to their employees' bank accounts the second their shift ends. It's a really simple solution to a really big problem. Because let's face it, paying out cash tips to your workers day after day, shift after shift, is kind of a nightmare. Tedious tip distribution takes managers away from work that matters. It's hard to track payments, which leads to accounting and compliance headaches. Plus, cash tip-outs create the perfect opportunity for theft, and there's never enough cash on hand to pay out those tips, so managers are constantly having to make bank runs. Bottom line, there's never been a secure, efficient way to tip out until now. Meet KickFin. KickFin is an easy-to-use software that sends real-time cashless tip payouts straight to your employees' bank accounts 24-7, 365 days a year. Tipping out with KickFin gives managers and operators hours back in their day. It makes reporting a breeze and protects your business from mistakes and theft. And employees love it, so it's one of the best recruiting tools out there. Best of all, restaurants can have KickFin up and running overnight. Employees can enroll in seconds. No hardware, no contracts, no setup fees. Get in touch today for a personalized demo and see how restaurants and bars across the country are tipping out with KickFin. Visit kickfin.com slash demo. As always, that link is in the show notes. So my guest on today's show is Chef Michael Reed. He's based out of Southern California. He's got a place in downtown LA called Poppy and Rose uh, and a new restaurant just ready to celebrate its first anniversary in uh, Orange County called Poppy and Seed. Uh, Chef, I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Appreciate you being here. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor to be on your podcast. I look forward to our wonderful conversation. Listen, this is the best part of the show is that I'm able to cultivate a community uh, of people who are all trying to do what you're doing. Uh, we're all looking to each other for help, for answers, for solutions, all of that. Uh, and you've done this very successfully. And uh, you've got one restaurant that's, uh, I guess, about eight years old now. Uh, so I want to talk about that, the genesis of that, um, and, and sort of the life of that restaurant. Uh, and then you got another restaurant, as I said, that's about a year old. And uh, I think that's a really interesting story slash case study as well. So let's go let's go back to the beginning. I want to I want to understand a little bit more about you before you owned restaurants. Tell me how you got into the industry. Tell me how you got started, how you came up and and what sort of led you to opening that first place poppy and rose yeah so i started about 18 years ago um i was up at uc santa barbara i was running track and field and i broke my foot my junior year my coach was like you'll never run as fast as you were as a freshman and i pivoted i really liked food um i didn't love going to school for accounting and business so i was like let me go to Plan B and plan B was to go to culinary school. Um, and luckily enough, Santa Barbara City College has a great culinary program. 
So I took a year, went to school, learned all the basics, worked at a couple of country clubs, vegan vegetarian restaurant, a kosher restaurant, and then transferred out, to, or not transferred, but moved to New York to go to the Culinary Institute of America, upstate New York, did their two-year program and loved what I did there and then worked at the Modern in Manhattan. Then it snowed and I promptly said, I'm a Cali boy through and through and moved back to <laughs> California. Uh, I grew up in Ventura County, um, which isn't known for like the food scene. So I came back to LA um, and literally was just looking for Michelin star rated chefs and restaurants and ended up getting a job at Sona for Danny Myers um, and learned a lot from him for a year and went over and was in line to be a sous chef for Nancy Silverton. And I just kept working and grinding through like little pay, long hours, um, and literally ended up leaving Moza and getting a, an executive chef position at 26, thanks to Nancy Silverton. She recommended me for a job and I took it. And so at 26, I was an executive chef, which was way too young, personally, when I look back at it. <laughs> I had no idea what I was actually getting myself into or how to actually navigate that you know because i kind of jumped over that sous chef position just to an executive chef um so i did a lot of growing and learning for two and a half years at that restaurant and then when i left that i was kind of a little bit burnt out um and started my catering company called root of all food and that kind of really got me going as far as cooking more seasonal farmers market driven food um everything from scratch um and still be able to cook at that higher end level as a caterer for our private guests that we were doing stuff for. Um, yeah. And it just outgrew. I was doing it out of, of like most people out of a garage basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Uh, so wait, so I want to, I want to put a pin in this for one second. Cause you went back. I just, people love to skate over stuff and it's my job to go back to the really interesting parts. So, because I want to get to the catering, because I know that led us directly into your first restaurant. But I want to go back. Okay. Because Nancy Silverton, obviously, uh, people, if they didn't know her before, they certainly know her after um, after Chef's Table and all that, right? Moza is, uh, is great. It's a big deal. You're working for her, and you're talking about getting your first executive position. And you said you were in over your head. You didn't know what you were doing and all that. But obviously, Nancy recommended you, so she saw something so what is it that she saw that you didn't quite see at that point? Can, can you go back and put yourself in that in that place again? I was driven, you know, like I was very independent. I didn't need a lot of handholding, um, you know, between the restaurants I grew up in and cooked for. They taught me a lot of stuff. So I was very independent. And, you know, like I wanted to be her sous chef. Unfortunately, at that time, it was more of a monetary thing where I, mm -hmm. I needed to make X amount and the position was only paying this much. So unfortunately I couldn't do that for her, even though I wanted to do it with her and keep growing and learning under her. Um, and so when I left, I left on really good graces. I was like, I'm not in a rush to leave. You have however long to find my replacement. So I was there for like a month and a half after I gave notice, you know, and, mm -hmm. and we maintained our relationship. Like she would call me and we would go up and she was doing, um, a festival up in San Francisco. She did LA food and wine for a couple of years. And I would go off and do these fun events with her and I would travel with her and go get to eat at all these fun restaurants that I wouldn't necessarily be able to afford and, you know, still kept in contact with her. So when she gave me that opportunity, I was like, well, you say I can do this because you see something. I was like, I know I, I could, I could cook and I was independent enough to like create menus and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. It was just more of like, Look, you, if you have never run a restaurant and then you go from jumping over a sous chef where you're now management and you're now you're managing more people and other things, it's just a huge learning curve to hire your line cooks, train your line cooks, food costing, ordering, brokering deals with your vendors to make sure you're getting the right pricing for the ingredients you're getting, um, just sourcing and things like that was you learn a lot really quick when you're so who did you lean on because everything you're saying is that is exactly right like i spend so little time talking about the creative piece when i coach with my clients because there's all the other stuff i always say i sort of trust the creative stuff's going to be there that you're going to be able to put together a delicious you know delicious vibrant diverse menu um so but all the other stuff you talked about you know inventory management ordering you know building relationships with the vendors, food costing, you know, personnel, both, you know, making sure you're hitting your labor 
cost and you know managing the people how did you learn all that who who taught you all that did, did you have somebody that was sort of in your corner guiding you not really like that's the, the weird thing I, I kind of feel like a little bit of a mutt because it's most people like oh i worked for so and so for five years so you have this huge upbringing i was like i worked a year here a year here and i learned a lot i got to see a full season from these people and their menus and the creativity but I didn't really get the management training. Like, yes, I went to the Culinary Institute of America, which does have an in-depth, like food costing, labor costing, and things like that. So I had that in my corner already. Plus I went to school for business and economics. So I was, I was savvy enough to be like, let's make an Excel sheet. Let's figure this out. Um, I'll talk right. more about it later. Like when I ran the standard, I, I was their accounting's worst nightmare and best friend. <laughs> because I could figure out, I could predict my food costs so well and so fast because I had this master Excel sheet that I created that was just logging, logging every day. I was logging my food costs, food waste, yeah. transfers to bar, the whole nine yards. And I was like getting in trouble because they're like, now I have to tell you why your food cost is so low <laughs> on the P&L reviews. I'm like, because I know my job, I broker deals. So it's, you know, like I learned... I learned a lot in that first one to control food costs, um, you know, yeah. pricing things right, going to the Santa Monica's farmer's market, talking to the purveyors, figuring out what I could get from them. That was like new and different um, and just utilizing, using cuts of meat that aren't your flaming Mignons or New York's and getting a still really good cut of beef and really showcasing that, hey, this took a little bit more time and a little bit more love, but you can still have a great steak and not have a prime cut. Yeah, for sure. So with the your background your education sort of you know piecing it together talk to me about the people side of things um i, I want to come back to the food costing and all that because that's obviously somebody something that really kind of bit everybody in the butt this past year if, if you weren't doing it and i i teach it the same way you do it because i learned it the same way you learned it right which is doing it the long way there's no software for what i do it's a it's an excel spreadsheet you learn how to build formulas and when you get your hands on it like that you really you know it inside and out um that's how i learn it that's how i teach it no matter how many great pieces of software are yeah. out there but talk to me about the people because obviously the other big thing that we had going on over 2021 was uh was was a people issue was uh you know finding people finding enough people finding good people and keeping them how did you um talk to me about your education in that first year or so of having your first executive job, what did you learn about people and managing people? Um, I would say from when I was a young executive chef to now, it's like night and day management style. Like, I think I was a, a little bit of a hothead. You know, you're 26, 28. You're literally going, I'm the best chef out there. I'm young. And you think these things and then you realize yeah. you're really not. You're really not. You know, you <laughs> Like you get a couple of reviews, you know, and you're like, ooh, that's not how I see it. But okay. Yeah. So, you know, I got a, got a couple reality checks, you know, um, management style was very much how I kind of grew up, which was a little bit more rough back in the day. You know, kitchens weren't the most team building experiences for a lot of kitchens that I worked in. It was hot, fast, furious, big egos lots of tempers, no fights that I actually witnessed. Um, but, you know, they weren't the kindest places to to most chefs, especially young chefs. Um, they weren't teaching kitchens. It was like, if you didn't know what you were doing, you kind of got left behind or you got fired. Um, and so I yeah. kind of was that way in the beginning. And I realized, like, you have to coach and motivate people a little bit more. You have to take your time and invest in someone that you can actually groom and grow up with. You know, like I still have a chef that's been with me from that restaurant that still bounces around to different restaurants I do, to different catering events. And he's a great guy. He's independent, he's doing his own thing now, but he still will come around and help me out and do different things because I spent the time and foster that relationship with him. So talk to me about that because this is one of those things, right? You don't realize until you're in charge and after you've been in charge a long time that like, oh, it's my rodeo. Like I can, I can do whatever, I can do whatever I want. You know, I can make this into what I always wished it can be. I mean, is, is it a little bit of that? Like after you're around a little while, you're like, oh, it doesn't have to be the way I came up. It can be something, something new. I mean, you said your style has changed so much. So talk to me about that evolution. Yeah. So like, I don't know. I learned a lot. Like, I think 
in most kitchens, you're like, you see certain executive chefs that yell and scream. And I'm like, I'm not really a yeller or screamer. I just, I get high pressure and people yelling and slamming things. I'm like, old school chefs throwing plates. I'm like, that I would never do. I was like, that's one thing I was like, thank you for showing me that. I never want to be that person and be viewed as that person. Plus, that's not how I was raised to treat other people. So I never did that aspect of it. Um, but I think I got a lot softer and a little bit more caring over the years um, because you, you, especially these days, it's like you're getting these kids that went to the Cordon Bleu and the CIA and the Art Institute, and they have this glamorized um, opinion of what the food industry is when they really have no idea what it is. And when you throw them in a hot, busy kitchen, they just crack and crumble because they, they're not, the school does not prepare you for that at all. Uh, so this is something I want to stick a pin into because I want to come back to this specifically and I promise we'll come back because um, now I want to catch back up with your timeline because I because I, I want to know your feelings of where we are now and where we're going. Uh, but I want to I want to give people a little bit more context first. So go with me if we can. Um, you said you were doing this catering mm -hmm. and you were working out of garages and all that. Talk to me about. Talk to me about that catering company, what that was, how it and how it grew. Um, you know, it was based in Santa Monica, California. Um, we got connected with a couple high powered celebrity CEOs of companies and musicians that were at that time, you know, would love to throw large lavagant parties and I would, you know, prep in my garage, load it up in my car, and then drive it to their, their mansions and beautiful houses and literally cook in their beautiful kitchens. Um, and that kind of just, every time I would do an event, I was like, you gotta talk to two or three people, four people, hand out a business card. And so every time I would go do one of these events, I was just handing out business cards and then I was getting a phone call. So the next week I was booked once. The week after that, I was booked twice. The week after that, three times, four times. And it just kind of played in every time I was doing something, I was just get another client, get another client. And to the point where it's like, I had a live work lot that was just too small and I was like, the landlord's like, you could buy it for a million dollars. I'm like, I don't have a million dollars. There's no way I'm buying this <laughs> beautiful live work loft in Santa Monica, but not for a million dollars. Like I need a kitchen kitchen that I can actually start producing. Um, and we got lucky enough to find a undervalued piece of property in downtown Los Angeles that was in the flower market that had, I want to say four or five concepts kind of roll through it throughout its years. It was an older restaurant. The landlord really didn't know what he had. Um, and so we were able to go in, rehab it, redo the hood, clean it up, and drop the catering kitchen in there, create a small, simplistic brunch menu that would service that community because um, they get up at like 2 a.m. And we were like, okay, well, we'll start at 5 and then we'll go to like three, and then that way we can get that business from the flower market, the fashion district, and all those guys downtown that open up super early, and then we'll close it down, and then go into catering production, walk out the door at night, and come back and do it again. And we started off with five days, and then we grew to six days, and then it grew to seven days. We had people like, I'll be in there cleaning the kitchen, and people knocking on the door, on Sunday, are you open? No, no, not yet, not yet. <laughs> I'm just cleaning up from a catering event, you know, just trying to get my stuff back together. Yeah. <laughs> and, and now it's open seven days a week. I think we only, we only closed for like Thanksgiving, Christmas, and that's about it. Yeah. And of course, this is this is Poppy and Rose. This is what became Poppy and yeah. Rose eight years ago. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, it just naturally, organically grew into you know, we got really lucky that it was like all of a sudden people were like, there wasn't that many brunch restaurants either in Los Angeles when I started. Now it's like, there's a ton of them, um, yeah. which is interesting. You know, that's like, there's just so many restaurants these days that people have, like we depleted our own population of diners because we oversaturated the market with so many restaurants right. that it's like, you used to have 600 people per restaurant. Now you're down to like three, 400, and there's still more restaurants coming in. So it's definitely a challenge. So talk to me. So in the beginning, you had the challenge of sort of taking over what had been a failed space. So you had to make it into something new. I, I want to talk about that. But then I want to talk about also the, the staying power and how you built longevity 
when you're sort of looking over your shoulder, like you said, there were no brunch places or very few, and now there are tons. How do you continue to compete with them and, and sort of rise to the top? Can you talk about those two things? Yeah, so, you know, I would say the staying power that we get is basically the menu that we created is very comforting. It's craveable. Um, it's nothing like, it's not like the food trends you see on most of the time on Instagram. There's this huge thing and it's overwhelming and it's just so decadent. Yes, our food is decadent and it's different. You know, we don't, we do Benedict's, but we do this really flaky uh, biscuit instead of an English muffin. Um, we make a brown butter waffle because I wanted something that was nutty that complemented the chicken. Um, the way we brine things to the secret ingredients we put in the dredge. You know, everything we do is from scratch, making our own sausage you know making our own gravies is nothing like i've kicked out cisco so many times from my restaurant that i've taken over <laughs> in my years and cisco comes back and can i have this no i don't no big names it's smaller purveyors and we just do everything from scratch and that gives us an edge compared to other larger brands that think that they can just come in well we have a belgian waffle too no you don't have this belgian waffle this one is unique you won't be able to recreate things that we do so then talk to me about that, because now we're getting into marketing, right? And I always say that, um, you know, the differentiation is the sort of the secret sauce. You know, that's the only way you, way you can really survive, because there's only one you. So that's obviously sort of how you come at it, too. Uh, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is that how you sort of have navigated through all these years? Yeah, you know, like for us, we don't, like I said, there's those trends. We don't jump on the bandwagon like hot chicken. We just look, this is the food we create, and this is why people come to this restaurant. You don't have to do something crazy because you see it happening at the other restaurants and they're getting a lot of press for it. No, just do what you do best, which is pancakes, fried chicken and waffles, really good scrambled eggs, Benedict's, a biscuit and gravy, you know, like just stick to your guns and you will be okay. That's like, it's, a, it's comforting, right? You know you're gonna be like, you could come here one day come back two years later or a year or day after day and it's always going to be the same comforting food that you get nothing's going to change the quality hasn't varied over the years we didn't cut corners you know we are very consistent on make, making sure our product is consistent and for us that's what has given us the same power getting us our notoriety getting us the write-ups that we want for it's literally just because we're very very consistent and on track to mean like this is what the brand is and this is what the brand stands for and so we have people that come back that will travel out of state just to come eat at our restaurant because we are that consistent so then talk to me about i hate the p word but i'll use it talk to me about when the pandemic hit and how you guys pivoted or didn't pivot tell, tell me what you guys did to navigate through because obviously you came out the other end uh and you survived which is sort of news enough but Talk to me about your experience through that, what you guys learned and where you're at now. Um, so we were lucky. Um, you know, my wife is a great controller and my business partner. Um, so we were able to basically everything shut down. I was operating two hotels and as their consultant, shut both the hotels down to nothing. Um, for Poppy and Rose, I was able to like shut it down, pivot to takeout. We already had all the third-party apps running. So we all of a sudden just were like, okay, takeout and delivery. Cool. We don't really do that much of it, but we can turn it on a little bit more. And so we were able to stay afloat with that. Um, you know, we let go of all our employees early because um, we are like, look, everyone's going to shut down. We don't know what's going to happen. Go file for unemployment now because if you wait two months, you're not going to be able to get in. You're not, there's not going to be any money left for you guys. So we basically laid everyone off. Um, we're paying cash in hand, basically come work a couple hours here and there because, you know, business in that first week was just terrible. It was dismal. It just dropped off. And so we saw it drop, let everyone go. Then we turned around and started seeing um, the protests and, you know, black owned restaurants supporting and blackout Tuesday happened and, we were like having a conversation we're like, well, we should be closed, right? Or should we be open? We're like, we're black owned. So it's okay that we're open, I guess. And that Tuesday, the kitchen just got destroyed. Like all of a sudden it was like, everyone was like, okay, we're shopping with you. 
And so they just all were all of a sudden we were like, okay, now it's back to a normal day. And then the day after that, same thing and the same thing. And, you know, we were able to, you know, no toilet paper. Well, we have toilet paper. So buy some food, here's some toilet paper. You need sugar. And so we just started doing the pantry, buy food. You can get what, if we have it, you want salt, sugar, flour, whatever we have, you can have it. And so we ran a little pantry for people. That didn't really last that long because then that kind of like able, people were able to get the things they wanted again. But we kept with to-go's um, and then as the pandemic kind of changed and people were like, okay, everyone's dining outside now. We are in based in Skid Row. We are in the heart of Skid Row, right? Right up the street from us is the housing project for Skid Row and all the missions and everything like that. So it's like, you can't, our street is not the nicest street to be like, oh yeah, just take over a parking stall and put an outdoor area. You know, like you're gonna yeah. be, you're gonna be bothered by people outside slash your stuff is just gonna get stolen and vandalized. Um, so we worked with our landlord because we're underneath a parking garage that's three stories high. So we started talking to him and being like, can we take this much of the parking lot above the restaurant? And he's like, yeah, go ahead. We're not in the fire market in volume and traffic. They weren't parking cars over there. So he's like, go ahead. So we took a thousand square foot and we built a patio. And we were behind everyone else by that. I want to say probably like four months. We were like, one, it's, it's an yeah. investment. Two, we're still unclear of like, is this going to actually last or are we going to have to really shut down again? So we were just kind of buying our time. Um, but we finally got it built um, and it's really nice. And once we did that, we didn't open the dining room again. We just ran food from ground floor through hot boxes all the way to the third floor. And it went back to like, oh, you have this beautiful view of downtown Los Angeles. Everyone loved the patio and we were kind of back open. Now staffing front of the house was a challenge because now you have people that are running food from downstairs all the way upstairs. Yes, yeah. expectations were a little bit on edge because they're like, why is it taking so long? Like, do you realize we gotta go through a flower market that's a block long, go up three flights, walk all the way back, and then your food gets here. It's not like it's, there's a kitchen up there for you guys. So we were right. managing guest expectations. Uh, people were still on edge because they were so bent up from being stuck inside and just, they weren't the friendliest people. Yeah. Um, they kind of forgot how to go out and dine and left their manners at the door. Um, so they were a little bit harsh on servers that we can't control certain things. Yes, you still have to wear your mask. These are not the rules we put in for LA County, but you have to abide by them and technically we have to enforce them. So, yeah. you know, it was, it was definitely difficult to navigate all like the rule changes and it has to be eight feet apart and it has to be this and you have to put sneeze guards. So it was like trying to navigate that on a daily basis was just tiring and taxing. Pop Menu has reimagined the restaurant. They're breaking the mold of the menu, taking the kitchen doors off the hinges and serving up their most comprehensive technology solution yet. Pop Menu Max comes with the previous ingredients you've heard me mention on the podcast, websites designed with SEO, marketing tools to keep you top of mind with guests, and of course, the patented interactive menu technology. This new recipe brings automated phone answering to the table, brings third-party online order aggregation, waitlisting, and more. PopMenu's phone answering technology, for example, you heard it here uh, demoed on this show just a few weeks ago. That technology has your ringing phones covered, right? With the computer, it's artificial intelligence. The simple questions that usually keep your phone uh, tied up can now be handled by the computer without pulling a staff member away from your in-person hospitality. So no more missed calls, missed reservations, no more wasted time where people are asking for your hours, no more orders or missed revenue. That's just the beginning. You have a passion for food, Pop Menu has a passion for technology. Together, it's a recipe for restaurant success. Now, even more digital ingredients are in their technology pantry, and Pop Menu is helping restaurants attract, engage, remarket, and transact with their guests on a whole new level. Trust me, if you're a restaurant owner, you need Pop Menu to take your business to the next level. For a limited time only, get $100 off your first month, plus you lock in one unchanging monthly rate. Go to popmenu.com slash restaurant strategy to claim this offer. Again, that's $100 off your first month by visiting popmenu.com slash restaurant strategy. That link is in the show notes. 
I was going to ask, I mean, you know, the interesting thing about when the, the guests all came back, and you were exactly right, everybody was pent up, and they were just so eager to go out and dine, and it was like they, they forgot. And I, I sort of, I think there was a lesson learned there, and I, I guess I've, I've coached a lot of operators on this, you know, in saying, like, you can't, um, you can't get mad at people for having a certain expectation. I think it's just a lesson that we had to learn on the operator side about managing expectations, about really... Um, getting better about articulating, you know, what we're still able to do, what we're not, what we're no longer able to do, and sort of how this new experience is going to work. And I, I, I hope that that lesson sort of resonated with all of us because um, it was unfair that we sort of got slapped with that from <laughs> from guests, and yet it, it, they weren't wrong because they were still spending the same money or, or sometimes more money yeah. um, for a sort of a lesser experience. Um, and I think it just comes down to, I mean, this is something we've known about you know, business and value and, you know, the, the power of a transaction is that it's about communicating the value. I'm going to trade, you know, X number of dollars for that product. You know, what, what do I get? You know, is that trade, you know, is that trade equal? Is that worth it? Is that worth it to me? And I think, um, I think that's something we've got to get better at doing as an industry as we, as we move on, because we're going to continue to see sort of disruption over the next two to five years also i would agree you know it's it's just seeing the gas prices i'm just waiting for the phone calls from my reps going unfortunately your minimum's gone up your delivery fee that we're now going to have to tack on is a hundred dollars because of the gas prices and then we're stuck holding the bag and going well if i increase my pricing do i outprice myself from the market and try and pass that on to the consumer and the consumer are they going to realize that we're not making more money just because we're charging more. It's technically just, it's a trickle down. It's all going back to the guys that own the gas companies. It's not going in my pocket. And here's the bizarre thing, because only in our industry do we struggle with this. And I think it's a really beautiful, generous thing that we struggle with. But like in no other industry do they, in many other industries, they don't think twice. This is what it costs me to get it in. I got to charge X number. Of I've got to, you know, I've got to hit my costs, you know, based on, where my overhead, where my prime costs are, like this is what, like it just is what it is. Um, and I, I struggled, I watched a lot of operators struggle over, certainly over the years, prices went up and up and up and up. Um, you know, they even the ones that sort of kept track of their food costs. It's like, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're losing money, we're losing money. It's like, because you're not doing what you know you need to do, which is that you need to charge more or you need to source different ingredients or you need to go back to your people and renegotiate or you need to lessen the portion size or, you know, and with all of those stuff, it's, you know, it comes with, um, it comes with other stuff on our end. We got to communicate the value. Hey, this is why this is worth 25, not the 21 that you were used to paying. This is what it is. This is why it's that. And this is why it's worth that. Yeah. You know, it's, it, I think, you know, people getting stuck at home also, they started learning how to cook. There was a ton of meal delivery services that popped up that were affordable. Um, and so some people were like, well, I can do this for less. And then other people are like, I don't want to do this for less, but I don't want to pay more for it. So it's definitely like showing the value or, really communicating with your staff to then communicate to the guests is a huge role in doing things like we like a lot of restaurants there's a four percent health charge on our menu now because the cost of keeping our employees safe plus keeping the guests safe the chemicals we're using aren't cheap you know yeah. they weren't when COVID hit it wasn't like well you can't just use that one now you have to use this one this one kills it in three seconds this one kills it in 30 and you're just like okay what decision do i buy do i because i don't want to get sick or do i buy the one that kills it in 30 but it costs a little bit less you know like you have to make this but isn't this amazing that there are these incremental costs that come up that force you to either take a hit in your profitability or forcing you to sort of raise the prices because you have to pass it on because it's not passing it on. It's just, that's business. Yeah. Like if we don't turn a profit, there's no reason for us to exist. So let's close our doors. And in many other industries, right? Like, you know, whatever, like Toyota decides to charge more for their Camry next year because they have to, because they can't keep as many. They're not going to explain to you like, hey, listen, it's 34,000 instead of 32,000. Do you want the car or not? Yeah, like, you know, even it's just pair, amazing. A to pair me. of socks is a pair of socks. It costs this much to get the wool. Gas prices went up, so it's going to cost that. Feed went up, it's going to cost more. Okay, do the simple math. Yeah. This is what a pair of socks is. No one's going to 
oh my God, the pair of socks is now $4 instead of $2. It's a pair of socks. It's if, if you want, and that's where I think the end, you know, our industry, I, this is one of the lessons that I hope really echoes as we go forward is that we offer something really important to people, right? Not just food. You can get food anywhere. You can go eat, you know, get a bag of, you know, rice and beans and feed a family of six for a couple of bucks. But what we're offering is community and, you know, on and on and on, all the things that we offer, you know, in our in our industry. And I think we just have to get better moving forward of of ex- of explaining that. It's 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 one of the residual things that I that I really hope sticks around and because um, it's one of the things that I think we have to do and we just don't do that good a job of doing. Okay. I want to switch gears because we haven't even talked about your new place. Um, uh, whose idea was it to open a restaurant in the middle of a global pandemic? Well, you know, um, during the pandemic, wanting, running one restaurant was fun. It was easy. You know, it, I'm used to having the catering company. I was consulting for two hotels at the time. So I was I would, a guy with a lot of things on his plate. Um, but when I went down to one, I was like, yep. okay, well, we're at home now. We're cooking a lot at home. We're planting gardens at the house, starting a saltwater tank, a koi pond. What else can I do to keep myself busy? <laughs> uh, and so we were like, okay, well, if once we get past this, are you going to go back to doing those things? And in my conversation with my wife was, no, I like this lifestyle of you being around because um, we also have a three and a half year old now and we like having you around yeah. instead of just doing that for other people why don't you do it for yourself what's available we moved from downtown los angeles out to orange county um because that's where her parents live and we needed childcare, regardless because we in downtown we had an apartment that they would come stay with during most of the days and watch mckenzie and we would go to work um and so yeah we moved her out here. We moved out here so that we had childcare again, because childcare, once again, is expensive. It costs a full salary basically to have childcare. Yeah. So it's like, why, why, why should I work yeah. or both of us be working if we are basically wasting a salary on that? Um, so we moved out here, so we had them, and they love McKinsey and support us with that. And so we we're looking out here just to have something closer, because out here there wasn't really any really good food scenes going on it's not like la where it's like oh you can get really good mexican food it's just hit and miss out here in orange county Um, and so we kept looking you know she showed me a couple properties i was like it's doable it's doable but the rule we were looking for was it has to have an outdoor space has to have an outdoor space Um, in like five years ago i looked at a property out in anaheim when it was just a shell and I like I loved it. It was a beautiful outdoor space with a huge patio, a glass box as a greenhouse, but it was a raw shell. And I was like, I don't have the money right now. I'm still in a business partnership relationship with my other investor. And I was like, I don't want to grow the business with her per se. So I was like, we just pumped the brakes and we left it alone. And then I was like, hey, do you remember that building five years later? And she's like, yeah, that I took your dad to. Yeah, I remember it. And so we looked it up. I looked it up, and I was like, "Hey, it literally just came on the market two days before." So we were like the first person as it came back on the market, called on it, walked it. Landlord or the guy that was brokering the deal for the landlord remembered me, and he's like, "Yep, I remember you. Cool." And we're like, "All right, we want the building." Went through, did the turnkey lease, um, and paid way under value for what the guy left behind, which was, "Thank you, wife, <laughs> for that one." <laughs> we, we paid very minimal amount for all the equipment he left behind that was top of the line. Um, the lease was in our our mainframe of what we look for leases um, that are easy to maintain because I think a lot of restaurants forget that, yes, it's a beautiful space, the location is right, but do you understand how much money you're going to have to produce just to cover your first overhead, which is rent? Um, so like downtown, sweetheart deal, way under market value. This one right on round under market value or close to market value. So we were like, I feel comfortable knowing that if we operate what we think we're gonna do, we can pay the rent without any issues of coming up short and still be highly profitable. Um, So we literally did all the number crunching and we're like, all right, cool, did that. Um, We fully funded it personally um, with a small loan from her parents and kept it in the house. And then we paid them basically four months into opening. And, you know, it's basically this beautiful outdoor space that allowed us to really 
be able to do the outdoor dining on one floor and crank out delicious food. Um, and that's how this restaurant came about was we just wanted something close to home. Because before I was walking to work. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you can't. You're, you're not that close. You can't walk to this one. But I could. It's like a 15-minute drive. It may take me an hour to walk here, but <laughs> <laughs> it's close. Things are more spread out there for sure. So talk to me about the – so what was the difference? So you had this brunch place downtown. Um, what was the what was the focus of this of this new property? And what did you really want to do with this one? So, you know, the reason why – I always had consulting jobs was because I love dinner. I love showcasing my my ability to produce fun, interesting food, once again, from scratch, but it's like, I love rolling pastas. I love cooking steaks and fish and butchering proteins and all, all the stuff I went to school for, you know? Um, and so like Poppy and Rose, yes, it's fun. I'm very proud of what we do for brunch, but I am, a classically trained dinner chef. I, you know, I, I want to cook dinner. So, you know, that's why I was consulting at hotels because I did that in the morning and then I would go over there and cook dinner for them. Um, and so she was like, you want to cook dinner, don't you? I was like, yep, I want to cook dinner. And so this restaurant, basically the concept behind it was we're only really doing dinner focused stuff. We'll do brunch on the weekends because, once again, there's not a ton of brunch, good brunch restaurants out in Orange County. Um, so we did, we're up to five days of dinner, Tuesday through Saturday, we do dinner only. Saturday and Sunday, we do brunch. Um, we're choosing the quality of life that I want, where it's like we're only, our crew that does dinner only works Tuesday through Saturday, and then they're off Sunday, Monday. The guys that work the two brunch services are off Monday and Tuesday. We're not trying to run a six day or a seven day restaurant because in the beginning I couldn't hire anyone. It was just me. And then yeah. I was I took guys that had been working for me for like a couple like one guy was with me for eight years, the other guy was with me for five years. And because I couldn't hire anyone that was qualified or even no one would even show up. We'd schedule interviews and we people would respond and indeed, oh, I'm gonna do this interview scheduler time slots. I'll be sitting here waiting. No one would show up. I would have 10 interviews in one day and maybe one out of 10 would show up. And so I basically had to hire and ask people from LA to come work for me out here in the beginning because no one wanted to work. So, um, so it's just talk to me about that because this is not everybody listening to this. This is not news to them. This is everything that everybody has gone through. But why do you think that was? You'd line up 10 and only one would show up. What's that about? Um, honestly, I think the government screwed the pooch on that one. Um, that the free handout of unemployment was more lucrative to stay on unemployment than what restaurants were paying. You know, like we're not known for paying above minimum wage, really, for especially kitchen staff. Like, yes, we'll give you a couple more dollars because you have a certain skill set that we want. But when you start looking at like you can work for in and out and start at eighteen dollars an hour with zero experience, I'm willing to pay you seventeen dollars an hour, and I want you to be a lead line cook that has grill experience. So there's a huge in our industry there's a huge gap and disparity between what small independent restaurants can pay compared to larger conglomerates can pay, um, and so it was just easy. And and we shut down. We we put a lot of people out of jobs that needed those jobs and so we were very as an industry we weren't very supportive of the people that used to make the money for us um, and so yeah. a lot of people got deterred you know like a lot of my guys that were at the hotel they went and did construction and they were making 25 dollars an hour and they only had to work monday through friday trying to get those yep. guys back good luck you know like yeah for sure and and I think that was more, you know, it's funny because my pushback to the to the government handout piece is that uh, when all of the stimulus sort of disappeared, it's not like there was a rush back um, because that's something you, you hear a bunch. Um, and so that's my pushback for that. But but I, but I, I really agree with the, the second point in that um, and that people discovered where else they could work. They they figure, OK, I've got this skill set. Right good with my hands i'm you know i'm good on my feet i can whatever that was and they realized hey i can there's a lot i can do 
beyond just restaurants. Restaurants, there was a low barrier of entry. That's famously why so many people get into it, because you don't need to go to a four-year college to, to get a job in restaurants. Yep. Um, but I think a lot of people sort of realize their worth. Um, and that, yeah, and that it requires, it's, it's more expensive now. So talk, talk to me about that. How, you know, how do you, how do you lure people back or how have you been luring people to our industry or how do we continue to do it and do it better moving forward? Um, for us, I think we started seeing a pivot, um, for at least this new restaurant, uh, as we started getting more write-ups and notoriety. Um, as far as for at least the back of the house, the style of food that we were cooking, like we had a couple people. I have a guy that technically came into dinner, came into dinner like three times. That was in the industry, kind of very passionate about it. He ate at the restaurant three times and then he applied. He's like, I want to cook this style of food. He was newer, green, um, but he loved the food and he wanted to come here and learn. So I think for us here, it's literally building a brand that is attractive for kitchen people that are interested in learning because as I said, the younger self, not so interested in teaching and grooming people. My older self now is very much about, hey, we're a growing company. I need younger people to come in. I need to take you, mold you, not break habits that you already formed and literally groom you to something that I can literally take to the next restaurant. And so these guys are coming in and seeing that they have an opportunity, that there isn't a, a ceiling for you to hit because I'm like, we have another concept that's opening next year in 2023. And so they're like, if I stick with him, he's going to keep grooming me and teaching me and I'll have an opportunity to either move up here or he may take you to the next concept. And so the kitchen staff is really diehard. Like they like the food we're cooking. They like the seasonal changes that we're making. And that's always something new. It's not a stagnant menu like a lot of restaurants. Um, and we're, we treat it more, it's more like a training kit or teaching kitchen more or less where it's like you may not have the greatest abilities but we have faith that we can groom you if you have a good attitude and outlook on life we can get you to where you want to be so then because i love that and i think that's um i think that's key at least in my outlook of, of kind of where we need to go next talk to me about how you communicate that how you market that i mean how do you how do people find out about that? How do you how do you let them know what's the what's the hiring process look like? What does the training process look like? How do you you know if that's what you guys believe, uh, you know how is it that you can put your money where your mouth is? So we basically for interviews we have you come in do a normal face to face interview, um, standardized. Hey, you showed up on time, great. You showed up early, even better. Um, then the next part is actually showing them on a stage that we, we tell them it's a paid stage. So you're just not coming into stage for free. We will pay you just. If we don't hire you, we will pay you, but hopefully we hire you. Um, they come in, do their stage. You know, they do an hour, two hours of prep. Um, we then go into service. They see service. Um, we tell them that we are trying to break the other thing that we do here. Back of the house, front of the house, actually share tips to try and bridge the gap between a server walking with $400 and the back of the house walking with a measly hourly rate of 18 to 20 dollars an hour um and they're yep. in there from one till like 11 o'clock um so we're bridging that because i'm like look you guys can be part of service and that's also why i want for this restaurant and the next one that we're opening we really look at them and be like you are the food runner you are the person that like having a chef go out to a table and physically describe a dish versus a server that's just yeah this is your steak tartare on sourdough no, the chef that made it usually is the chef that ran out your food for you. So if you have, what, what is that? Is that the yellow, oh, that's cured egg yolk. It takes this, it's the process. And then they're more educated than most of our servers are. They spent the time making the dishes. They're a little bit more passionate when they talk about it. So our chefs, at least on the cold side, run all like 90% of the food out to the table. And then start, to start cool. that interaction with the guests, which the guests love. You know, like I run food even you know because i'm on expo so like when i'm we're sending out hands constantly and we're like hey there's still food we gotta run it nope you'll see me go out drop food talk to a table walking back so are you the chef yes i'm the chef we'll have a little banter back in the kitchen expo garnish out the food so it's a different approach because there's a couple of restaurants that i've been to and i was like i really like that style of when a chef delivers the food it gives it like it, you know we don't have an open kitchen here and it's nice to see that a lot of the newer kitchens they're building are open 
and it's a showpiece. You know, people want to see where their food is coming from and who's behind that that wall cooking their food. Um, and so, yeah. being able to have a staff that can run it, you know, we're still working on that last piece, which is literally saying, for us, I was like, we want to be able to take a kitchen staff and be like, you'll come in, do two hours of prep. If you're scheduled to be a server, a full-on server, you'll do your two hours of prep. And then that dinner service, you'll be an actual server. You won't be in my kitchen that day, but you'll still do two hours of prep. Then you'll be a server. So I'm getting more out of it than if I just hired a traditional front of the house staff. And we're working on trying to get that done, but everyone we're hiring, I go, look, would you want to train to be a server? Would you like more money in your pocket? Because the only way I can put more money in your pocket, if you would be a server and still do your prep, I get the prep production I'm looking for to help with the volume that we're doing. You get more money in your pocket. Mm -hmm. And guess what? You know all the food already. All I have to do is to the beverage yeah. side in the POS, which is these day and days, the POS is the easiest thing to do. And so everyone yeah. wins. Yeah, I, I love that. So that's what we're trying to foster here and hopefully on the next restaurant. But, you know, it's still a challenge. You know, you got to be able to hire the right staff. You know, we're getting we're getting yep. we're seeing an uptake in more chefs coming out and looking for jobs. So it's a, it's I feel positive that we're going to be able to pull this concept off and move in that yep. direction. So then talk to me because I promised we'd come back around. And we just got a few more minutes left. But talk to me about where maybe this is industry wide. Where are we now and where are we going? Like, 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 like what's coming and where do we need to go as an industry? We've touched upon a bunch of this stuff, but, but I want to know what you're thinking about. And obviously you've got a new concept kind of in your, in your mind that's coming. So, so maybe you can put it through the lens of that. You know, I think as an industry, my plea for our industry would be, can we please work together to do away with tipping? Can we just get away and go to the European system where the menu price is the menu price and it covers the cost of paying the employees what they need. It allows the owners and operators of the establishment to make the right money so then they can get paid and do away with this tipping class. Like the tip in a lot of states, Texas, where it's like you have a, a pitiful hourly rate. California that has a high hourly rate and then you still get their tips. Like why do, what industry do you know that really still does the tipping system? It's a, it allows, it's too subjective. It allows for racism to creep in yeah. and other things that don't belong in our industry anymore. So why why are we continuing that trend? You know, you I mean, I mean, the, the history of tipping is is wrapped up in the discrimination and, and it, it continues to be discriminatory, whether it's um, whether it's overt or, you know, more nuanced. But I, I completely agree with you. Do you think that's a reality? And how do you what do you think? How do you think that tips? Look, at the only way we can do that is if as a collective, as an industry, as a collective, we all do away with it. Because if we, once once if I said I don't no more tipping. Right. I guarantee our patrons would be like, well, you're pricing us. Your pricing is too high. And they don't understand that it's built into the cost of paying a livable wage for everyone we employ, plus health insurance and everything like that. They're not going to look at it like that. They're just going to be like, your steak is now $60 and it was 40 you know. But as a whole, if we literally made that move as one, then you would actually see a change. But it takes everyone to kind of be like, this is why we're doing away with it. So I, I love this. So I'm going to press you one more. How do we do that? Because famously, our industry is siloed. That I mean, that's, I think, how we had gotten into the issue, you know, around the pandemic, that, that we didn't have a, a strong lobby, you know, looking out for the interests of the industry. When we're all siloed, how do you do that? How do you get everyone to the table to say, hey, we're all going to agree to do this? You know, I think it goes two ways. You know, you can try and say that the industry can do it themselves and do it quickly. Or you're looking at someone that at least in Congress, in the House, to actually pass a bill that goes, this is racism. Tipping is racist. Bottom line, we this, this can no longer stand. We're in the 21st century. Let's stop doing this and let's actually look at what we're you're okay writing bills to say that we have to increase our minimum wage but you're still leaving room for discrimination you know so it's got to go either the industry do it unanimously behind everyone getting together and i think that's looking at your heavy hitters in the industry across the, the nation um to really step up and kind of use their voices and get everyone else on board um and get like-minded people to do that 
or it's going to actually have to go to Congress or the House to get a bill passed that goes, this is BS. You know? Yeah, it's funny. And I, and I see a third path forward, um, which is that if you do, and so I'll say, I think there's another path forward. And of course, the, the argument against what I'm about to say is that a bunch of people have tried this and have sort of reverted back. Danny Meyer being sort of the, the most famous one who did this across yep. all of his restaurants. And when re he reopened all his restaurants after the pandemic, he put tipping back into place. But I think part of it is also making that experience really great. Cause I love when I go to a, to a no tipping restaurant. I love it. Like when they drop it, I'm like, Oh, where's the line for me to sign? They're like, Oh no, no, no. Ho you know, hospitality included or, you know, Oh no, no, no. We're, we're no tipping. I'm like, I just got a 20% discount. Like I, I, I didn't realize it's like my favorite thing. And I think it's just really clean. It's really easy. I, I mean, I prefer it, you know, and then, you know, it sort of brings all the equality back into the table, you know, to boot. But I just think from a, a customer's perspective, it's nice. Like, like what yeah. it says is how much you're going to spend tonight. There's, there's no, there's no, there's nothing else, nothing else you have to worry about. And I think if we can make that a better experience for the guest, I think they'll just go to places that because they prefer that experience. That is true. I would have to agree 100% with that. You know, I just went to one a couple of months ago. And I was like, oh, there's no gratuity. Love it. Tell me more. Tell me more. I love it. I'm How telling are you, you doing this? I'm telling you, I went out with my with my brother a little while ago and we sat there and they dropped the check. We were both like, oh, how do we sign? Where's the, the line? And they were like, no, 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 we're no tipping. We were like, score, let's go. Let's get another round of drinks because we saved all this money. <laughs> we put it back. We invested it back into the restaurant. <laughs> there you go. There you go. For sure. Listen, uh, Chef, I'm really, um, I'm really grateful for your time. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very aware of your time. Um, uh, where can people go to learn more about the restaurants if they want to go check them out? So poppyandrose.com and poppyandseedoc.com. Or you can find us on Instagram at poppyandseedoc. So... You know, just Google best brunch restaurant will pop up for Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I love it. We'll include all of those links so people will be able to uh, to, to learn more about you as well. Uh, I appreciate you being here. Any last words of wisdom before I uh, let you sign off? No, just stay positive. Pay it forward. You know, dividends will always come back to anyone that pays it forward. Just be happy with life. You're still alive. You know, life is great. You know, we're out here having fun. We get to do this to bring people together and break bread with their family and friends and cherish these moments. Amazing. I, listen, I think uh, I, I feel really honored that, uh, that we get to do what we do every day because we get to take care of people. They sit down and we get to say, what do you want? What else can I get for you? Are you happy? How can I make you happier? Like, I think, uh, I think it's one of the hardest things to do in the world. And I think it's also one of the, um, the really energizing things that we get to do. Yeah. Yeah. It's a blessing. Chef, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Have a good one. Once again, big thank you to Chef Michael Reed for taking time out of his day to sit and talk with us, to share uh, his insights, his perspective, uh, being an owner-operator uh, through one of the most difficult times I think many of us have ever been through. If you find yourself in Southern California, please do go support. Really great guy. Uh, very, very talented chef and cook. A really great leader. Uh, thrilled to be able to sit down and chat with him. And if you want to get in touch with me, set up a free 45-minute strategy session. See, uh, see if you are right for one of our coaching programs. Again, and the door is always open. You can go to restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. Find some time on my calendar. We will have a conversation. I want to hear about what you're going through, what challenges you're facing, and I will tell you what I do, the, the kind of uh, companies and the kind of operators and owners that I work with, and let's see if it's a fit. If not, hopefully you will leave that conversation with some really key nuggets uh, so you have a clear idea of what to do, and if you happen to be right for one of the programs, I promise you we can make a big impact. Again, restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. Uh, grab some time on my calendar to uh, to set up a free 45-minute strategy session. My door is always open. I look forward to connecting with many of you uh, over the coming days. Be well, and I will see you next week.